Hello and welcome to this event on what does global Britain mean? It's a conversation with Peter Ricketts and Peter Westmacott. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute. And I'm delighted to welcome Peter Ricketts and Peter Westmacott to this event, which has been prompted not just by the G7, just over, but by the books each one has published on what Britain should now do about its role in the world and how it can have influence. Lots and lots to talk about. A few housekeeping points first. Please do send in your questions. I can see uh, uh, some are coming already. Um, do send them as soon as you want. Be great if you want to add where, um, your name and where you're writing in from. It's always good to know. Please post your question in the panel that's on the right of your screen. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Global Britain. Please do follow and tweet along. And we're going to have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours. Thanks very much for joining us. So let's turn to the conversation in hand. Well, I'm delighted, as I said, to have both speakers here today. Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, retired from the diplomatic service in January 2016. In the last stage in a long career, which covered the US and Singapore, he was British ambassador to France, the last four years of that. He was also the British government's first national security advisor, and from 2006 until 2010, the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and head of the diplomatic service. He's just published Hard Choices, what Britain does next. The subject is self-explanatory, I think, from that title, although the answers are not. Peter, very warm welcome. And Thank you very much indeed, Roman. Good to be here. And also we have Sir Peter Westmacott, who was British ambassador to the United States from January 2012 until January uh, 2016, his second posting in Washington, having previously been the uh, political and public affairs councillor there in the mid-1990s, a lively time. Um, prior to his service as ambassador to the US, he was um, the ambassador in France until uh, 2011 and as ambassador to Turkey starting in, in 2002. Uh, he also made an early decision to study Farsi and Iran. They never got posted there, but all these countries feature very strongly in his new book. They call it Diplomacy, 40 Years of Representing Britain Abroad. Uh, Peter, thanks. And I think you're joining us from Turkey. Is that right? That's right, Bronwyn, and a great pleasure to be with you and the other Peter. So thanks so much for doing this. Great. Well, uh, thank you. And thanks to the audience as well. Let me start by asking you both. We just had the G7 with all the, the photographs, the very, um, um, uh, as, as these summits go, rather photogenic, um, Prime Minister in the water and so on. Um, Peter Ricketts, do you think the G7 was a success and was it good for Britain? I think as a summit, it was a success. Um, I think it was very well organised. It was a good location. Um, the Queen and the royal family sprinkled their stardust, and obviously that was much enjoyed by all the participants. In a way, uh, the UK was lucky because this was the first summit where leaders were actually able to get away from the, the zoom and gloom uh, of the last year and be together. It was Joe Biden's debut uh, summit as well. Everyone was clearly delighted to have him back, to have a sense that America had re-engaged in the uh, international cooperation. There was some very good substance in that communique, I thought. We'll no doubt come on to talk about it, but vaccines, climate change, this interesting initiative on green and clean growth and unlocking private capital to support development in the third world as a competitor to the Belt and Road Initiative. That was all good. Did Britain really derive as much benefit as it could have done from the event? No, in my view. Um, 
And it was an opportunity for the Prime Minister to showcase global Britain post-Brexit. In fact, he became embroiled in this uh, very deep and difficult row with President Macron and other Europeans. I'm afraid it showed an image of the Prime Minister still completely obsessed with um, the relationship with the EU and his battles with the European Union happening literally under the noses of other G7 leaders. So I think that it was not as effective at launching global Britain as it might have been. Thanks for that. We'll come on to this point about the Northern Ireland Protocol a lot. Um, Peter Westmacott, sorry, I'm going to have to refer to you both by your surnames for the very obvious reason. Um, what um, um, what did you make of, uh, of the summit and the point that Peter Ricketts is just making that Britain could have got more out of it? I don't think I disagree with what Peter was saying. I think it was a great opportunity bit of good fortune, if you like, for Boris Johnson, that it was our turn to chair the G7. Uh, it was fortunate also that the sun eventually shone beautifully over the, the blue skies and the blue water of Cornwall. So it was good for the tourism industry in uh, that part of the United Kingdom. I think overall the summit was uh, an important one, not least because so many of these heads of government and heads of state were coming together in person for the first time in a very long time. And it was the first outing on the main stage by Joe Biden, and some people were able then to get uh, the measure of him uh, pretty quickly. We noticed that President Macron was very quick to put his arm around uh, the shoulder of the visiting American president, even though that wasn't exactly the sort of social distancing which were supposed to be part of the rules, but you know, that's, that's politics for you. I think I would just add two points to, to what Peter was saying. One was that I was struck that in the bit on camera of the conversation between President Biden and President Macron, there was a very strong message coming through from the US president that he regarded the European Union as a very important organization and very important to NATO and very important to the security and prosperity uh, of the Western world. And I think that that message ought not to have been lost on the British government as it tries to work out what global Britain uh, really means for the future. And the second thing I would say was that I personally regretted, but you know, I, like Peter, I've been in Paris, the kind of briefing that went on saying President Macron doesn't understand that the Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom uh, from unnamed British officials. I mean, th there was uh, clearly a, a difference of view and there was pretty firm uh, language from President Macron, but also from the other Europeans who were at the G7 summit about the importance of the United Kingdom implementing the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol part of it, which it had negotiated uh, and, and now doesn't like parts of. But I think to say to President Macron that you don't understand that the Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, that he clearly didn't quite say that. What he probably did say was that Great Britain and Northern Ireland are separate pieces of geography uh, with the Irish Sea between them. But, you know, that sort of briefing, I thought, was unhelpful at a time when Macron had said, I'd love to reset the relationship with Britain in a post-Brexit world uh, if we can get beyond our current obstacles and difficulties. And that seemed to me a bit of sort of gratuitous finger pointing, which I'm not sure is helpful as we seek to establish new post-Brexit relationships with our really important neighbours and partners. All right, so let's pick up, uh, maybe I'm going to be the one to disagree. Uh, um, let's pick up this point about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And obviously, uh, there's coincidence of dates in a way that made this issue, uh, we're approaching the, the end of Britain's unilateral extension, it, 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 the coincidence of dates that made it, this all flare up at exactly the same time as the G7. But it was, as you said, uh, the first time for all these leaders to get the, to get together face to face. Yes, and Boris Johnson's mm -hmm. point is that he signed 
uh, protocol and you've got the EU saying uh, if we're ever to trust the UK it needs to stick by what it has negotiated and signed. His strong point though is the sheer difficulty that it is proving to have on the ground and the level of bureaucracy um, that seems to have descended um, on, on this you know really tiny patch of um, the planet's surface. Um, do you feel that how should Britain take this how should Britain take this forward um, because you know both sides have dug in to feeling that they are right Peter Ricketts yeah I mean this summit should have been an occasion from to my mind for the leaders to get together and create the confidence and trust between them for negotiators to be able to find a pragmatic solution as you say we have to find a pragmatic solution um, and there was a lot of goodwill around in Cornwall. Uh, I think the Queen and the Royal Family helped to create that. Um, and it could have been a moment for Boris Johnson to go to Macron and Merkel and Van der Leyen and say, look, we need to take a step back. Um, we need to set the climate so that uh, negotiators can find a solution. Um, instead, they seem to double down on the row. Now, of course, Macron knows that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. I think the point he was really making is that Northern Ireland is in a different customs status to the rest of the UK. And that's as a result of the protocol that Boris Johnson signed. All the bureaucracy that's descended on Northern Ireland is in that protocol, signed and approved and ratified by Parliament here. If the UK government is going to suspend that, then it means that there is no customs check between the EU and the whole of the UK. And that clearly isn't going to be acceptable to the EU. Uh, and at the end of that road potentially lies some sort of customs border across the island of Ireland. So this is about far more than just sausages in Northern Ireland supermarkets, however important that is, or even medicines in Northern Ireland. It is about potentially a threat to the Good Friday Agreement. Therefore, the stakes are high. Therefore, the leaders should be ratcheting down the rhetoric and leaving space to find the pragmatic solutions. I can't believe that it's impossible for the EU to accept that medicines um, authorised for use in the rest of the UK can be used in Northern Ireland. But the whole climate has now been made so toxic and so adversarial um, that I think it's made it more difficult to find a solution out of this weekend. I think that's a real pity. Peter Westmore, who you even uh, ambassador to France, uh, Peter Ricketts succeeded you in, in, in that post. <clears throat> Do you think Britain struggles to get that relationship right? Do they both, is it when, when you when you went to take up that job, did you regard it as one where you'd have to navigate these uh, misunderstandings and so on? Yes, because I, in those days before Brexit, much of the relationship between Britain and France was about EU business. So each time there was an important European Council coming up or Foreign Affairs Council where there were EU issues on the agenda, then this became you know, a complicated part of the bilateral relationship. I was fortunate in the, the, the really difficult uh, passage of arms that we had, if you like, with France on foreign policy over Iraq was before my time. Uh, and I wasn't there um, by the time we came to the referendum. But I was there when a lot of French politicians, including President Sarkozy, were saying to the British government and to the British prime ministers, uh, be very careful about this referendum idea if you really want to take the UK out of the European Union, uh, so be it. But do not think that you can be sure that you'll get a different sort of answer because we know a bit about referenda in our country and we know that on the whole, if people are feeling a bit bullshit fed up with life, the answer will be hell no, whatever the question may be. 
So there were plenty of warnings, if you like, in, in the relationship, uh, some of which I think were extremely well meant, uh, some of which were put to one side by politicians in the UK because you know, ultimately the political momentum from within the Conservative Party, not, not demands actually from public opinion in Britain, but within the Conservative Party to have this referendum and for some of them anyway to use it to get us out of the uh, European Union became irresistible. Do we find it difficult to manage the relationship? I mean, over the years, over the centuries, we've often had some very difficult moments. Equally, there are extraordinary things that Britain and France do together. And even now, I live in the hope that the relationship we've got on the defence and the intelligence and the foreign policy side uh, will remain pretty strong. And there's not much point, for example, in us thinking that we've got a role on putting the nuclear deal with Iran back together again, if we're not going to work with our European uh, erstwhile allies and the other members of the Security Council of the United Nations, who were the co-signatories of that deal. Ditto if we're trying to work out uh, an international response to the rise of China or the bad behavior of, of, of Russia, Britain on its own ain't going to get very far. So I'm hoping that, that much of that, based on the strong defense and foreign policy tradition of cooperation we've had with France, counterterrorism, counter cyber, and so on, uh, will allow us to continue to work closely uh, with those neighbors, uh, even though we're outside the EU. But that also requires a big effort on our part to try to establish the, the level of trust, which, which Peter was talking about, in the bilateral relationships at the highest level. And I'm not sure that we're doing quite as good a job at that right now as we should be. Mm. Peter Ricketts, what about the, the um, relationship with the US? Uh, as you said, Joe Biden's first outing and uh, a sigh of relief in some quarters of not having to deal with Donald Trump and his skepticism about the G7. And the, and the UK and the US put out a, a renewed Atlantic Charter, echoing the one of 1941, um, with some quite crunchy stuff in it, it seemed to me, about uh, particularly defence and security cooperation. And China was there in the background um, as a threat that they were both working towards. Were you, do you, do you think that's for real? And has Britain really got something to contribute to that? I mean, I think it was a universal sigh of relief at the arrival of uh, Joe Biden in international councils. And he was there again in NATO yesterday, repairing the damage that Trump had done to NATO. Um, yes, of course, there's real substance in the US-UK strategic relationship. Peter knows it very well indeed. Uh, the Atlantic Charter, actually, I spent the first chapter of my book talking about the 1941 Atlantic Charter, which I do see as the foundational document for that post-war international order that we still talk about so much. Um, and there, the UK and the US had a common vision. Uh, they turned it into international institutions, which have lasted 70 or 80 years. I don't think that the new Atlantic Charter has quite that resonance uh, or will be looked back on in 80 years time as a foundational document. <clears throat> but yes, it was a comprehensive reconfirmation of those things that bind us closely to the US with some new material uh, on the importance, for example, of science and technology cooperation as well. So very useful to have. Of course, it was accompanied by the rather clear warning from the White House as Joe Biden arrived in the UK that we were to do nothing in Northern Ireland that would put the Good Friday Agreement at risk. So there was a reminder that the Americans are watching that relationship very closely and seeing Joe Biden with other Western leaders in Cornwall. You know, Britain isn't the only country to have a close relationship with the US. Uh, Macron was making his bid to be the senior European leader now with Merkel leaving the scene. I'm rather glad that um, Boris Johnson wants to bin the special relationship term because 
I think that did look needy. Um, Americans always knew that they had to say that in order for the Brits to feel that they were welcome in Washington. Um, it's a more modern relationship now. China will be at the centerpiece of it. I think for the next generation of diplomats, they're going to be dealing with the balance between cooperation and confrontation on China. We will be close to the Americans on that, but I don't think exactly in the same place. Uh, actually, I think we do have a rather different balance of interest on the commercial relationships with China. Again, that was rather evident in the discussions at Cornwall. But a modern, constructive, productive relationship and the new Atlantic Charter summed that up. Mm. It was more a statement of a restatement of existing policy positions than groundbreaking and radical in the way the 1941 document was. All right, there were some nuggets in it, though. If it, was, it had a, um, a commitment to NATO, absolutely. Um, but saying um, it was a phrase in there about, about you know, uh, members of NATO needing needing to pay more than in the past. There's been long, long running saw um, the, the US still paying a great deal of the effectively the defense of, of, of Europe. And Donald Trump then inflamed this enormous this this issue enormously. Um, but it's still there. What do you think is going to happen on that? Right, Bronwyn, this has been an issue for quite a long time. I remember I had a my head scrubbed almost uh, informally uh, back in the days of the Obama administration about burden sharing and about the risk that the United Kingdom might not itself be going to meet the 2% target of GDP as a defence spending uh, commitment. Uh, and they expected the UK amongst all people should be doing that, even if some of the others, the laggards, uh, didn't have quite the same level of, of expectation, if you like, in, in Washington. So this has been around for a long time. Uh, there is a uh, the barrier uh, is set quite the bar is set quite high for the UK in terms of both defence spending and capabilities, and I would say it has been set quite high in terms of political will to join the United States as and when uh, there is something important to be done abroad involving military intervention, uh, where the US instinctively would look to the UK and say, uh, "Will you come along with us?" Now, uh, we can discuss that separately. I, I think there was a, a defining moment on the 29th of August, 2013, when Obama asked David Cameron if he would join him in, in bombing Syria after evidence emerged of the industrial use of chemical weapons. And David Cameron said, well, I, I'm on the beach in Poles F at Cornwall. Um, I've got to ask my parliament. And in the end, parliament did not approve. And that was both a moment when, in the end, uh, President Obama decided to ask Congress as well, and Congress wasn't entirely up for it, and so it didn't happen. But I think that lesson, and it was repeated in, you know, less visibly later on, that the UK was not automatically going to be there uh, at very short notice if the United States wanted uh, our trust, its trusted ally and partner to be with it, was uh, an important signal. Not necessarily a bad one. I think you can't be taken for granted in this way. But it's part and parcel also of that yeah. concern about uh, the commitment and how much the Europeans yeah. are going to be paying for the cost of their security. So I think you're right. Donald Trump highlighted that issue by saying it's outrageous. They owe us tons of money. It wasn't true, uh, but he was uh, making a valid point when he said the Europeans are not paying their fair share. Yeah. And I don't think that was targeted at the UK because we are actually above the 2% uh, bar. But it was targeted at some of the others, and that's not an unreasonable thing to do, because if we do want the United States to continue to be the principal defender of Western security and values, uh, it is important that American public opinion does not feel that it is paying a disproportionately large share of the bill. Whoever's the president. 
whoever's whoever's the president. Well, thanks for that, because it brings me also right on to a point that I wanted to ask you both of what global Britain means in military terms. We've had the scars, if you like, of of Iraq and Afghanistan, two wars that did not go to plan, um, and now a much smaller uh, army for a start, um, and a lot of um, of, of anguish about trying to uh, repurpose uh, Britain's defence spending towards cyber and other things, which are now the minimum of what a country has to do to de defend itself. I mean, P Peter Ricketts, what do you think Britain's allies should expect? And its enemies, I guess, um, of of global Britain on the military front. Well, clearly, the Johnson government has made the defence um, budget, defence uh, issues, a major priority. There's been a big increase in defence spending, more or less the same as the very big cut in aid and development spending. So that's a pretty clear strategic statement. Um, the British armed forces are still a very powerful military force, and we shouldn't underestimate that. Uh, they are still basically trying to do everything everywhere, which is getting increasingly difficult with the cost of military equipment and the declining manpower. Um, we've just dispatched our new uh, aircraft carrier to the Indo-Pacific, which is a, a big gesture. Um, I mean, I think it is for the moment not much more than a gesture because uh, it will come back and we're not going to have a major standing military presence in, in Asia. Um, but our Navy, our Air Force are cutting edge and very effective. I think you're right to mention the Army um, because from the integrated review and the defence review that went with it, it's not entirely clear whether the priority for the Army is now back to basics, back to Europe, um, deploying forward in Eastern Europe against the Russian threat, or the sort of expeditionary training uh, capacity building role for which the new Ranger battalions have been set up or um, operating much more in the hybrid area, cyberspace, um, space itself. Uh, I mean, I think the answer from the government, it's all the above, but it's increasingly difficult to be full spectrum and at the same level as the Americans in all the above. Um, and I don't think there was a very clear choice made, particularly for the army. So the answer is powerful military force needs to work closely with the Americans and other allies uh, in almost every case, but it remains one of the major uh, things that Britain brings to security in the world, a very professional armed forces working with others. But you, you refer to the aircraft carrier as sending it uh, at the moment as, as a gesture. And uh, Peter Westmacott, I wonder what you make of this. We do, as I said, have, you know, um, Iraq and, and Afghanistan are in recent collective memory. What What should we expect of our military power? Peter, I think you may be Norman, on mute. I lost you for a moment. I'm sorry, sorry. If there was a question. I couldn't hear it. Yeah, not at all. I mean, just picking up on what you may have heard uh, Peter Ricketts say, um, which is a careful but upbeat um, and reassuring uh, sense that Britain does have something I'm military. Sorry. I, I can't hear you at the moment. Um, Shall I just pick up while Peter comes back online, Bromwyn? Yes. Um, I think that there is an issue. You mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan. I think there's an issue in the UK and other places now about what the armed forces are really for, um, because it was very clear after Iraq and Afghanistan that for across the political spectrum here, the assumption now is no boots on the ground. Whatever the problem, whatever the question, the answer is no boots on the ground. The British armed forces are going to be intervening from distance um, through air power, for example, perhaps using the Navy 
and through training and equipping local forces. Um, okay, um, the problem is that others, our potential adversaries like the Russians, are very prepared to put boots on the ground. And I think there is a kind of broader Western problem that exists in the UK as well. Um, you know, what really are we preparing our armed forces to do? Um, and I don't think there's a political consensus on that. And until there is, it's quite difficult for the armed forces to know precisely what they should be ready to do. I think it's a broader political issue that needs to be tackled. I'm not going to dwell on the past a lot because this this um, this conversation is about the future. But what sure. do you think countries should make of Britain's role in Iraq and Afghanistan? If you like it, what went wrong? Well, I think we learned a very hard lesson in Iraq and Afghanistan that intervening in these complex, difficult, distant countries with different cultures is a very, very risky business. Just remember that in the lead up to that, we'd had the first Gulf War, which had been short and successful in terms of expelling Iraq from Kuwait. We then had the Balkans, which was a very difficult time. But by the end of all that terrible business in uh, the suffering in Bosnia and Kosovo, there was a degree of stability returning to the countries. It looked like Western intervention had at least stabilized things. Mm. Then Iraq and Afghanistan showed that that is by no means always the case. And as I say, I think the lesson from that was drawn. Well, the, the West must never do that again. We mustn't send our armed forces into countries uh, like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that does leave the field open to others like the Russians who are prepared to take more risks with their armed forces. Um, so I think we're still working our way towards, um, you know, completely balanced view of what we use military force, how we use military force to achieve political objectives in the modern world. And I think perhaps the scenery is shifting away from conventional deployments of large numbers of troops towards competing in cyberspace in the hybrid area um, against subversion and disruption rather than armed attack. Um, and I think it's right the government and NATO are turning more attention to that. Mm. We seem to have um, still lost Peter Westmacott. So uh, ah, let, me, okay. let me keep um, firing um, what are not meant to be missiles at you. But That's all right. uh, on, the, on, the, on the China question then, and, and you devote yes. a bit of your book, um, particularly the later sections, to this. Do you think Britain has a role in combating um, China's uh, assertiveness in its region? Or is that really one that our aircraft carrier side, that, that's one for the US to pick up? and we have to work out our trading relationship? I think we have to be very careful to calibrate our own weight and influence in the vastness of the Indo-Pacific region. It's fine to talk about a tilt to the Indo-Pacific, and as it came out in the integrated review, it was a very measured statement, actually, that we should pay more attention to that region, given its economic dynamism. Um, and on China, again, I thought the government's integrated review was carefully balanced. A security competitor, uh, maybe indeed an adversary one day, working closely with the Americans to build our resilience there, but a country that we need to work with in terms of um, trade and investment, in terms of climate change, for example, making a success of the Glasgow summit at the end of the year. And we can't afford an across the board confrontation with China. That I'm absolutely clear about. And there were times, particularly in the Trump administration, when uh, we had our arms twisted very, very hard over the Huawei 5G affair and so on, where they did want us, I think, to line up in an across-the-board confrontation. Um, and, I we think did, the and we did line up. We lined up on security. We had no option. I mean, it was a reminder, actually, 
yeah. that, you know, as I say in my book, there are hard choices out there. When the Americans really twist our arms, we have no alternative. But we do need to try and keep a space open for commercial relations with China. Um, I think that's what the government and other European countries are trying to do. Um, so uh, I described it as strategic ambiguity towards China. We don't want, I think, a black and white, clear cut, one or the other answer on competition or uh, confrontation or, or cooperation. It has to be a bit of both in a very subtle mix, which will change over time. Mm. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to someone um, to, um, uh, to ask, uh, ask the Taiwan question and what happens then. Um, yeah. um, I think struggling to rejoin us. And if he does come back, okay. I want to ask him about Iran and Turkey, two countries. Yes, he knows do. Well, he's so, very, very expert on yeah. that. Um, let's go on to uh, the questions. Uh, there's a lot of uh, terrific ones already. Right. Um, let me put um, for, for choice here. Um, let um, we've just been talking about the. Um, this one I saw right at the beginning um, about um, whether really global Britain should be called global England. Um, <laughs> Um, that we're really dealing with a, a, a collection of names and it doesn't make sense to talk about global Britain. Uh, here's the question from Chris Weston. Doesn't global Britain actually mean global England given Scotland is likely to be more concerned with independence and rejoining the EU um, and, and what happens to Fast Lane and that nuclear deterrent then or Northern Ireland will increasingly be drawn into the Republic of Ireland's governance, some would dispute that, um, and Wales also rethinks its status. Anyway, more words there around the, the essential point. Yes, and it is a vital point, isn't it? Um, I think the ambition, I'm not quite sure first of all what the ambition for Global Britain is. Um, having carefully read the 90 pages of the integrated review, I still didn't really know what the choices were behind that. I think it is partly anything but Europe at the moment. The government had to have a policy which was something other than being a member of the European Union. And I don't think it's very, you know, very clearly identified yet exactly what it is, um, other than a generalized wish to be out there more um, dealing with the Australias and the Canadas and the Americas and the, the rest of the Indo-Pacific rather than Europe. Um, but no foreign policy is going to be successful if there are doubts about the stability of the country itself. Um, mm. I think Gladstone said, you know, my first rule of foreign policy is uh, good government at home. So as long as there are doubts about the capacity to keep the union together, uh, independence of Scotland on the horizon, that weakens and diminishes Britain's influence, um, our capacity to persuade and influence countries abroad if we can't manage our own affairs at home successfully. That is a cloud over us. There'd be all sorts of practical national security issues as well if Scotland ever did become independent. They'd join a long list of issues, of course, and mm. the nuclear deterrent at Fas Lane would be one of them. But yes, I think it doesn't help Britain's image as a confident, um, outward-looking country to have these real doubts about the stability of our union at home. Mm. Is it something you think the Prime Minister should make more of to say to the four nations, look, defence is one of the things that we do together? Yes, that the absolutely. UK does for yeah. I mean, you know, I don't see an independent Scotland really being able to afford any any effective defence forces. You know, it would become a small um, European country, whereas Scottish uh, regiments, Scottish people have been you know, profoundly, intimately engaged in British armed forces for centuries. Yeah, I think it is a point that uh, that uh, the, gov the government should make more of, that it, it's the British armed forces that protect the security and safety of everyone in, in the UK. Mm. 
All right, thanks for that. We've got one from Idris Rufai from Nigeria saying, a few hours ago, Prime Minister Johnson announced his first UK trade deal with Australia. Is this, um, is this a sign of what Global Britain means and what the deal will translate into for the UK? Well, uh, I think the government see it as an important symbol. Yes, it's the first uh, trade deal that has been negotiated, which isn't one that simply copies and pastes existing deals we had because we were a member of the EU. Um, so it's got a symbolic importance, of course. Um, it's, its real importance in economic terms is pretty low. Uh, I think it adds around 0 0.01 to our GDP when it's fully in effect. And it's not going to be fully in effect for many years because of the risks for British farmers of allowing tariff-free entry for, for uh, meat from Australia. So uh, we should not exaggerate the importance of it in economic terms. Uh, it's a political symbol for the government to have achieved it, yes, um, but it's not going to make up any of the real deficit left by the economic impact of leaving the EU. Thanks for that. And Peter Westmacott, well done for rejoining us. Um, it doesn't always, uh, doesn't always happen. Oh, maybe he's gone mm. again. I think he's he's turned his camera off for a moment. I think he's still there. Peter Westmacott, are you with us? I'm, I'm talking into the ether. He was tantalizingly yes. there yes, for a second. Yes, right. Yes. Well, I've got I've got a couple of particular questions for him, but I'm going to have to wait for him to come. Absolutely. Um, so um, let me ask one from uh, Amanda Kindness, who says on a similar vein to uh, Chris, the the first question about global England. Should we? be diversifying the reputation of the various parts of the UK rather than striving for a single global Britain brand? Well, I would say yes. Um, I mean, as an ambassador, I was very conscious that Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland all had international links of their own, all of course had communities living abroad. Um, and to take Scotland for an example, is a very strong cultural brand of Scotland, which the French in particular are fascinated by. Uh, and uh, love people love to go from France for holidays in Scotland and have Scottish weeks in France and so on. So the, the cultural richness and diversity of the whole of the UK is part of our strength. It's part of our soft power. Um, and I wouldn't want that all to be kind of turned into one um, bland, homogenous British brand because uh, it's important to have that diversity. But it makes much more sense to do it together as a union, frankly, than to have uh, a country like Scotland believing it can you know be a successful global country at the size of Scotland I think as part of the richness of Britain it's very important. Mm. You pick up one from Ashley Muxworthy who says really on back on our discussion about the Northern Ireland Protocol um, saying does it sound reasonable that 20% of EU trade checks occur where trade is not point not 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 eight percent of the EU total, and there is a suggestion in the question that it's being used by the EU as punishment, with no regard to the Belfast Agreement. Uh, and this is back on the really uh, our earlier discussion. But I I would love to dig into this a little bit more. Thank you for the question. Well, of course, it's a very good question, and I would not say that I'm a deep expert on on trade issues with Northern Ireland. But I go back to my original point. This is all set out in the Northern Ireland Protocol which the government uh, negotiated, signed and ratified, all actually in a considerable hurry at the end of 2019, Britain became a third country outside the single market. And uh, the EU has rules about the checks that they apply to countries moving goods into the single market. Uh, that's the position of Northern Ireland. It's got this complex position 
uh, of being both in the uh, single market of the UK and the single market of the EU. Now, all that said, um, I strongly believe that if the UK built con trust and confidence that we were willing to um, abide by the protocol and make it work, but needed sensible, pragmatic, risk-based adjustments, that the EU would find a way to accept that. I think what really worries them is these threats to suspend the protocol, uh, to kick the whole thing over, at which point, as I was saying earlier, the single market of the EU is then open to the whole of the UK without any checks. While that lack of confidence is around, the EU will be purist. I think if they had more trust that the UK wanted to um, accept their rules uh, as they apply to the single market, but make them work in the context of Northern Ireland, it would all get a lot easier. That's why I thought that Cornwall was a lost opportunity to regain some of that trust, which is going to be needed for settlement. Mm. And it is a point you hear the word trust, particularly on the European side, <coughs> saying, look, you Britain negotiated something, signed it and then changed it. Um, obviously, the, there is the UK government side saying we've begun to see in practice um, what a threat this is to the peace that we all care about. Don't you care? You, you in Europe. And, and there really are two sides to this, which is what makes there, it. There are two sides to it, of course. But, but you know, as I said earlier, there is a threat to the peace process at the end of the road that which begins with suspending the protocol and its checks across the Irish Sea, because then eventually you have to have some kind of check across the island of Ireland. And that's the nightmare of a, of a border between the north and south of Ireland. I think the EU are very conscious of that. I think the Americans are very conscious of that. Yeah. And so, you know, the interests at that level are aligned, but there's an animosity and an aggressiveness in the approach which yeah, no doubt is not uh, all the fault of the UK, but somehow or other the negotiators need to be told to, you know, put the take the Union Jack socks off, um, uh, cut the, the kind of ideological stuff and get to some sort of pragmatic solution. Ronwin, can I, I just say it's Peter here. I'm back on audio, but you yes. won't be able to see me. I'm so sorry about my technical problems. No, no, don't worry. Don't worry. So is there something you'd like to add to that? Well, I only just came back on, uh, but but I heard the end of what Peter was saying. And I understand the argument that isn't it a shame to make quite such a fuss about border and customs controls for such a fruitlingly small amount of intra-EU trade, if, if that's not a simplification. And I think it does come back to two things. One is the trust point that we've both been making in the past. Uh, and I think the second is that there is a sense of frustration in different European capitals that this was uh, a convoluted arrangement which was put together uh, by the current British government, by uh, Boris Johnson and his negotiators, uh, in preference to one which Theresa May tried and failed to get through the parliament. It, it was what the Brits wanted, and there is a sense now that the Brits are walking away from it or not wishing to implement it, however a small part of the trade it should be. So it is about saying, okay, if you want to leave the European Union, and by the way, as Macron keeps reminding us it is your decision to do so uh, and if you want to push us to settle for a rather hybrid and convoluted withdrawal agreement which you did and which we have reluctantly accepted then it really does behove you to play by the rules of the game and implement it rather than to complain that the rest of us are being too puristic and legalistic and lopsided I think was the word which the foreign secretary was using at the weekend in, in implementation. So it's it's not really about the volume of trade. It, it is about this issue 
of trusting us to implement a, an agreement which we negotiated and which we wanted. Mm. Well, thanks for that. And perhaps then, um, Peter Westmont, you could pick up, um, there's a question from Vijay uh, Strau, um saying, um, how can the UK government overcome 43 wasted years in the European community? Surely global Britain should mean it is distinctive from the EU in every way and focused on the Commonwealth and developing com uh, economies in Asia and Africa. Well, you know, some of us wouldn't agree that it was 43 wasted years. Uh, good... a, a, a question with attitude. Yeah. Um, should we be uh, focusing on, on Commonwealth and others? Well, uh, I think we will be in a number of different ways. The Commonwealth, I think, is an undersung institution. I think it's tremendous that it's already agreed that the Prince of Wales will be the next head of the Commonwealth. But let us be clear that the amount of trade that we do uh, with our friends in the Commonwealth countries uh, is dwarfed in comparison to how much business we did with the EU, which was when I last looked, 45% of British exports uh, went to the EU when we were in the single market. So by all means, let's do more with our, our friends further afield. Uh, but, but it doesn't come anywhere close to making up for the economic damage which has been done from leaving the customs union and the single market. That is the problem. Uh, yes, now that we have done Brexit, we do need to try to make Britain into a distinctive uh, global Britain. Uh, I heard the Prime Minister talking about a burgeoning status as a great international maritime trading nation. And I think one or two of his other ministers or former ministers said, and you know, we will once again rule the world. Uh, I didn't like that phrase, I have to say. Uh, by all means, let's try and make something of, of the concept of global Britain, but I still don't really know what it means. The only thing that perhaps is worth flagging is that we will no longer be bound by any common foreign and security policy decisions taken by the uh, European Union um, member states, of which we're no longer part. So we've got that flexibility, that agility, if you like, to take our own decisions. But that's, that is, in a sense, counterbalanced, in my view, by the fact that all by ourselves and without powerful allies, be they European or elsewhere in NATO or on the Security Council or the United States of America or whoever, um, Britain by itself is not going to be punching very much above its weight anymore. So, uh, yeah, let's make the best of it. I, I, I'm all for it. I, I just don't yet see uh, those enormous benefits that are flowing in our direction. And I think it'll take a very long way before any number of free trade agreements, most of which, by the way, do no more than match the terms we already had as a member of the European Union with our, mm. our trading partners in, in third countries. Take a very long time before any of those free trade agreements or, or the total of them uh, ends up uh, compensating for the, uh, the loss of the mm. trading benefits that we had as a member of the single market. Thank you for that. Let me pick up actually a pair of questions. One from Stephen Holland saying, should the UK not be doing more with African countries given our long historical relationship, the growing economic power of the region and the prevalence of China in the continent? And um, then there is one particularly for Peter Westmacott um, saying, please, could you talk a bit more about the potential for um, prospects for the Gulf, Middle East, North Africa as carbon receipts decline, particularly uh, Iran? Uh, it's from Simon. Thanks. Uh, Peter Ricketts, do you want to start with that? Um, Africa and then uh, Peter Westmacott, um, Africa and Middle East. Um, well, I'm very happy to defer to Peter Westmacott on um, uh, the Middle East and, and Africa, which he knows more about than I do. Um, why don't you let Peter go first and, right. and, and right. I'm happy to come back. Peter. <laughs> well, um, okay. I'm, 
Africa not my strongest suit, though I've been to a number of different African countries in my career. I've never served there. A couple of thoughts. It's a very good question. I think a couple of thoughts. I think in the Middle East, uh, yes, we're all going to be a bit less dependent in the years to come on oil and gas supplies coming from that part of the world, though not overnight, and we're not self-sufficient like the United States is, which is often being mentioned as a reason why America will be less bothered about what goes on in the Middle East in the future. But we do have a deep historic responsibilities. We have a lot of knowledge. I constantly find, even now, no longer as a representative of the British government, um, friends in Gulf states and elsewhere in the Middle East saying, you know, have you forgotten about us? Uh, we had a very close relationship. We only seem to see British ministers now and again when they want us to sign a contract for an arms deal. Uh, we would very much like to see uh, a close relationship re-established. And if you are now looking for a new role in the world, uh, here we are. And there's some very big investments coming into the United Kingdom from some of those countries. And so I, I would like to see us doing more in that area, possibly even with a security and an intelligence sharing uh, dimension. We've got a lot to offer in terms of, of countering cyber threats and some of the low cost off the shelf uh, drone uh, threats, which the uh, uh, security of those countries is, is subject to. And then Iran, if you like, we've all perhaps forgotten about it, but you know, mm. about 100, 100 years ago, Russia and Britain were two countries which rightly or wrongly cut Iran into two zones of influence. Uh, and we decided that you know, that was how we were going to organize things. And then, of course, in years after that, Britain and America uh, got involved in Iran, and Iranians have not forgotten 1953 and the Mossadegh coup, etc., uh, etc. Et so all that really by saying that we have, again, deep knowledge of Iran. There's a lot of suspicion of Britain, just as there is of America in Iran, lots of a certain amount of paranoia around, and it's always handy for a government which is not doing a great job of looking after the interests of its own people to point to foreign enemies and, and malevolent influences. And we see that in, in lots of parts of the world. But there is history, there is knowledge. I like to think there is a good deal of affection as well for the United Kingdom across much of the Middle East. And I would very much like to see Britain, uh, as it tries to establish a new role for itself as a, as a global player, uh, re-examining those relationships and seeing whether it can make a real difference. But I come back to my earlier point. Mm. Take Iran, for example. We're not going to be able to put the nuclear deal back together on our own. We can only do that and indeed develop the other elements of the relationship with Iran, if mm. it's going to be possible, in partnership with other like-minded powers. And I think we just have to get real about that, which is why I'm glad that the E3 <coughs> partnership between Britain and, and France and Germany, even if it's informal at the moment, seems to be still alive and we have understood that we have to engage with our partners uh, elsewhere in Europe as well as in Washington on those issues. And in Africa where we've got very deep roots, very, very briefly, um, through the Commonwealth, many English-speaking countries there, many functioning democracies, and the less one hears about certain countries in Africa, it's probably because they're working extremely well. Uh, I think there's a lot we should be doing there. There's the vaccine diplomacy, there's investment, uh, there's a different approach to encouraging economic development and infrastructure in African countries to that which is applied by China. And I was delighted to see President Biden uh, giving his very strong support to that. And I think the G7 did the right thing in signaling uh, an alternative approach to that of China to economic development in Africa and other developing countries. And I hope we will see the United Kingdom at the forefront of the countries seeking to make a, a difference in that area. Thanks very much for that. Um, I've got a pair of questions from SYGM. Uh, the first one, 
think about relations with China, Peter Ricketts discussed at some length. But there's a second one about how the UK should leverage its considerable soft power. Peter Ricketts. Absolutely right. Uh, the UK does have uh, serious soft power assets. Uh, our brand and reputation around the world have been very strong, and I think in many ways still are. Our cultural, educational, um, our history, um, uh, our science and technology, our research and development, our universities add up to a very powerful soft power asset. Um, but it has been damaged. Uh, I think it's been damaged by the decision to cut the aid budget sharply and at very short notice, uh, which has meant that many extremely important programs have had to be literally cut and people sacked because from one month to the next, the funding disappeared. That's not good. I think also the soft power of the country is has been set back by the way that the government has approached the EU issue and the threats to break international law. That doesn't sit well with the country that um, is the uh, was at the foundation of the rule of law uh, with Magna Carta uh, and the great traditions of uh, British parliamentary sovereignty. So uh, I think there are there's been damage done. Um, it is part of our uh, offer to the world and the strength of the country. Uh, and I think there's more the government can do to help funding our cultural institutions like the British Council, making it easier again for British uh, musicians and, uh, and cultural uh, activists to be able to visit Europe and tour Europe without running into all the uh, paperwork of visas and a lot of customs formalities. Um, but I think we should be thinking of the soft power of UK. I'm glad it figured in the integrated review, but let's make our actions fit our words so we're not undermining um, the power of that asset by some of the government decisions. Mm. Thanks for that. And thank you, Trevor McFarlane, for answering, uh, for asking a question on the, the, the same lines. Um, um, and indeed, uh, thank you, Patri Patrina Finch, for asking your question on Northern Ireland, which I think we've covered, but you, you put it very, very well. Um, there's a, a question, uh, not no name attached, but what's the comprehensive spending round later in the year first since coronavirus will have on global Britain's objectives and its achievements? Uh, money. Um, which of you would like to tackle that? Shall I just say very briefly that um, one of the uh, striking points about this integrated review was that it seemed to be written um, without reference to decisions taken outside it on funding. So the very large increase in defence spending happened before and outside the review. And then this cut in the aid budget uh, happened uh, outside the review as well, in a way rather undermined the objectives of Britain continuing to be a soft power superpower. So money is absolutely vital. Um, I think the focus of the comprehensive spending review is going to be on the domestic programmes, obviously, um, the impact of the pandemic and building back from the pandemic. Um, I hope money will also be found for international priorities like uh, more funding for the transition required to reach zero carbon energy uh, and international work. Um, as Peter uh, was just saying, I think the G7 initiative on climate and on a fund to unlock private sector investment into green energy projects around the world is good, but I think it needs more funding. So I hope that the necessary money for restoring Britain's uh, social and economic fabric after the pandemic won't crowd out money to ensure that we're also delivering internationally, not just in defence, but in other areas as well. Mm. 
Thanks for that. Let me pick up one now from Andrew Davies. Does the reduction in the overseas aid budget damage our ability to be or to be seen as global Britain? Peter Westmacott. Well, Peter just addressed that. Uh, yeah. it, it was a very sharp um, reduction in the aid budget and change in the uh, legally based commitment to 0.7% of GDP. And of course, because so much of our aid goes into automatic, if you like, subscriptions to international organizations, it meant that the reductions in the bits of discretionary aid, in other words, the bits over which we have got uh, our own control, were even more brutal, particularly uh, Yemen, where people talked about a great deal, which I think was, was a great tragedy, but we kind of understand the, the thinking behind it. I think it, it is a great shame, not least because the United Kingdom had set something of a gold standard in terms of development policy, first of all, with the establishment of uh, our own development ministry, now subsumed, merged with uh, the FCO, uh, and also with that 0.7% uh, commitment based in law, that that was how much we were going to spend on development issues. And moving away from that, even though it is only temporary, as the government has made clear, I think is a bit of a hit to our credibility in that part of our um, global power credentials, if you like. But I would add just two other points on going back a little bit to the soft power thing. One, I think let's not lose sight of the huge asset we've got with the monarchy. Uh, we saw that despite the political squabbles going on behind the scenes in Cornwall, we saw the Queen, we saw the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall, we saw uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, you know, very visibly uh, playing host to the world's leaders and then the Queen entertaining um, President Mrs. Biden at Windsor Castle in the way in which our own Queen <laughs> knows how to do it better than I would say anybody else in the world. These are enormous assets and not only have we got Queen as the head of the Commonwealth and Prince of Wales in the future, but we saw also at the Eden Project during the G7, the Prince of Wales hosting a large number of global CEOs on issues to do with ESG and, and corporate social responsibility and business making a real difference to uh, economic development around the world. These are issues which Prince of Wales has been addressing for the last 30 or 40 years of his life, long before they were front and centre of the business agenda for many others. But it's there, and I think it makes a real difference, and that is an additional asset that we have got, multifaceted, I would say, and it was very good to see it um, so visibly uh, in the course of the G7. And then the other thing is that I do very much hope that whatever happens to aid spending and whatever happens to immigration policy as part of the post-Brexit world, we do not throw away the extraordinary assets we have in some of the world's very best universities and the offer that they can make, that they have been making, to the best and the brightest from all over the world to come and get an education in the United Kingdom. Sometimes they stay in the United Kingdom and, and, and use the skills that they develop uh, for the greater good of, of British society and British business, but sometimes they go back home and make a real difference there and are part of, a, like, I like to think, a global network of, of individuals uh, in key positions around the world who think warmly and strongly about Britain and the very high quality education we can offer. And I worry that uh, there are moments when it looks as though we're not going to be as welcoming to the students from around the world who have benefited so much over the years from the best of British education. Thank you for that. Um, let me try and squeeze in um, one, uh, two more. There's one, um, no name, but should we be building a new relationship with Ireland, North and South? Peter Ricketts. Uh, well, yes. I mean, of course, the relationship with Northern Ireland is intrinsic to, to the UK. 
Uh, and it's also vital that that North-South Ireland relationship survives the stresses and strains of Brexit. Um, when I think back to the uh, referendum campaign, it was not an issue that was widely discussed in 2016, but it clearly has had an immense impact on society and the economy and the politics of the two parts of Ireland and has put the uh, extraordinary achievement of the Good Friday Agreement under some real stress. And we're beginning to see signs of a return to uh, even violence in the street, which is, which is of course, uh, completely unacceptable. So I think politicians on all sides, including in Brussels and in Washington, are now focused on the risks in Ireland of the tensions arising from Brexit. And we do need to now reset things. Yes, absolutely. Find a way of making that protocol work, which doesn't have an impact on life and, and people's livelihoods in Ireland, and ensuring that we can keep that border open and good relations going between all parts of Ireland. What the longer term future holds, I don't know. I mean, I do read reports of the uh, possibility that all these tensions are increasing interest in a united Ireland one day in some of the communities in Northern Ireland. I mean, now that I think we shall leave to the future to, to decide. But for heaven's sake, yes, let's give high priority to maintaining um, the achievements of the Good Friday Agreement, despite the stresses and strains of Brexit. Can I add one comment, Bronwyn, yes. to that very briefly? Uh, I agree with everything that Peter just said. I, I think also that rather than something to be worried about, uh, the very close interest which uh, the, the Irish-American President Joe Biden takes in Ireland and all things Irish and the Good Friday Agreement uh, is something that the United Kingdom government should welcome. Back in the 1990s, when President Clinton was in the White House and when we were still trying to bring an end to the, the troubles and get weapons decommissioned and so on, and then led eventually a few years later to the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the fact that the United States was so heavily committed and had excellent links to all the players in Northern Ireland, as well as in Dublin, um, and was prepared to take some risks for peace and appointed uh, envoys of the quality of George Mitchell, former Senate Majority Leader, I think made a difference. And I think with a degree of interest that there is in the White House of trying to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement remains intact uh, and that Ireland does not find itself tragically going backwards rather than forwards is something that we should see as a real opportunity. And I'm, I'm hearing that the US government is likely to appoint another uh, envoy for Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think that the UK government should em embrace that willingness to help uh, enthusiastically. Well, thanks for, the, thanks for those answers. And we're actually going to have to wrap it up there. So you're going to be spared some of the ex excellent remaining questions, including bluntly what the gap is between the rhetoric of global Britain and the reality. Um, but thank you. And there's many, many good questions here um, from Ufa Fidka uh, uh, about the EU from Nick Greenstock uh, as well from Denise Dillage. Uh, thank you all very much for sending uh, those in. I think we covered a lot of that ground, but, but um, I'm glad I was able to pick up quite a few. Um, Peter and Peter, thank you very, very much indeed for fielding questions on all these things and indeed grappling with technology as you've done it. And thanks very much again for joining us.